water, blah, 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 green economy, blah, 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 net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be very, very tough, this summit. And I'm very worried because it, it might go, it might go wrong. We have a moral responsibility, even if we didn't cause it, we would have a moral responsibility to do something about thousands of men, women and children who have lost everything. COP is a massive opportunity, but it is a huge responsibility on the shoulders of world leaders. This is COPcast. Hello, and welcome to COPcast 7. We are back down at the Clyde. As you can hear in the background, there's plenty of people here trying to put some pressure on people inside the fence to do the right thing for climate and nature. Uh, today we've got two conversations for you. The first is with the Director of Scotland, Anne McCall. Uh, we'll be reflecting a little bit on the day of action from the weekend, which was an amazing day. And also looking ahead to this week. And then I'm going to speak to Beatrice Laraski, who is one of uh, our people from the policy side who's in there taking the temperature of what's happening in the negotiations and obviously also trying to have an influence on them as well. Uh, so I will be back at the end with a couple of bits of housekeeping, but until then, uh, here's Emma Cole. Right, it's high tide, I think, the Clyde Slack tide, I'm not sure. Uh, Anne is Anne McCall's with me. Hello, Anne. Hello, how are you doing? I am good. Um, Saturday, how did you enjoy it? Oh, what a day. It was amazing. I mean, I was uh, a bit weary at the end of it, I'll be honest. It was a long day. Started quite early, finished quite late. But uh, I, I do like a demo, I'll admit. But that was, it was just an extraordinary company. It was so many people. There was so many... Yeah, I mean, like, north of 100,000 people. Yeah, there. I, amazed. I mean, it was quite difficult to get a sense of it while you were there because there's no sort of vistas to see the whole march. But to see the numbers coming in afterwards of around 100,000 people, the energy, the goodwill, the sheer desire to drive change and from all sorts of different perspectives, it was one of the best-natured and surprisingly optimistic things I've been involved with, with so many people. It was great, it was a fantastic day, a real landmark day for Glasgow I think. Can I also say massive kudos to, I think his name was Andrew, the guy who'd made the giant Avocet oh, puppet, wow. which was just the most, I mean like folk, I'll put the, the, the link in the, show, in the show notes right, so that people can have a look at the video from it, but what an impact that thing made. Oh, the team who were running the Avocet puppet, uh, I mean, they must have biceps of steel, (laughs) shoulders of steel. It was big. I don't think it was, you know, vastly heavy, but they were carrying it for hours. It was gusty. It was rainy. I was just delighted it didn't turn into paper mache, I'll be honest. It held up amazingly well. There was one point when I thought they were going to basically take flight on Argyle Street and and go right over the top of Glasgow Green, maybe. It turns out that they'd done a surprisingly good replica of an Avocet (laughs) and it was very very keen to take off at one point. What I really loved was, I mean, they were doing proper puppeteering as well, so as we were walking past the tenements and there were folk hanging out of their first floor flats and the head of the Avocet was going up and the cheers from the crowd. And Yeah, it was interactive, it was dramatic, it got the message across and it made the New York Times. There we go, what more can you ask? So... Back to us with a bump today, though. In the, what, how does it feel going from, like, that environment, 
right, the, the day of action environment into the environment within the fence at COP26. Yeah, it's very much the what you would do on a Saturday and then Monday morning, suited and booted. Quite a contrast. So I've never been to a COP before. Um, so this morning has mainly been about registering, going around the various what are called pavilions, which are just um, you know stalls of different collaborations of people or governments. Uh, and I actually just listened to Barack Obama do his uh, speech in the plenary. Couldn't get in the room, obviously. So that weird sensation of watching a live feed in a different room on a screen in a building, which lots of other people were doing. It's, yeah, it, it, it feels a bit like a slightly technical, slightly dull festival where there are too many things going on to be able to really follow properly and the kind of exciting big ticket items are already full. But on the other hand, um, I was meeting with some of our BirdLife partners, some of the RSPB staff who go to these things regularly and today is quite a busy day for them. There's a lot of work going on with the different negotiators, briefing them on nature detail, so it, it's it's a the world is in there. I could I wanted to ask you about that because the, the world is in there, right? Both in terms of the geographical spread of it, but also in terms of the different kinds of interests represented, right? And there are a lot of corporate interests in there as well, aren't there? Oh yeah, it's quite a it's quite a jarring walk round on occasion. So very taken by the peatland pavilion that we're involved with chatting to them talking about the importance of peat and then round the corner is a massive pavilion from somewhere like qatar which obviously the pavilion is very flash it's very expensive and there's quite a lot of promotional work going on around the value of fossil fuels so to still hear those voices being actively trying to promote fossil fuels yeah, it, it's, a, it's a space with many voices and some of those voices are still quite hefted to the status quo and I think that's probably the biggest boulder that everybody's got to push uphill. But actually I think, I mean, linking Saturday and, and today and what Barack Obama was saying, I'll just steal it, you know. Sell, Who better you know, to steal from, well, right, frankly, in terms of oratory? I'm, I'm not going to do a better job than Barack Obama. But he was saying, you know, this is a long fight, it's a difficult fight, and we have to talk to the people who don't agree with us, because if we just stick to an echo chamber of those who already understand and agree, we get nowhere. So it is about, those are the conversations that have to happen, um, I, but they're tough. Yeah. And, I mean, you are there, obviously representing a bunch of things, right? You know, but, but one of the things that you're there doing is being from RSBB Scotland specifically, right? How, a weekend, once we're, I guess most of us now are, are over that initial kind of thrill of, oh look, everybody's come to our bit, right? You know, you know that kind of say. Does it feel like Scotland's voice is getting heard in there? It's great, actually. I have, um, you know, as you might imagine, I've been voraciously reading everything on social media, bought lots of papers on Sunday to see how much, you know, to see what kind of coverage is happening. I think it is interesting, there's a lot of other small countries talking about the important role that Scotland is playing and can play. Um, Cristiana Figueres from Costa Rica, who was instrumental in the 2015 uh, COP, and she was making quite a lot of very direct comparisons between Costa Rica and Scotland and the important 
demonstration of what can be done by small countries and how critical they are. It's also pretty interesting chatting to folk inside with Scottish ministers have obviously been been going round and you know having very purposeful conversations with lots of the lots of the folk who are there. So I think Scotland. I mean, we're in Scotland. It, you know, I'd like to think folk are at least aware of the country they're in. Although when when you go through the portal to cop it, you could be literally anywhere. So I I I think there's some things that we're seeing that are being heard. I think Scotland's probably done a fairly good job of lots of us talking about the importance of nature and climate because actually Scotland is disproportionately important for things like uh, woodland creation and peatland restoration. And so marine it's big, and all that. Yeah, stuff, it's yeah. A, those are really big issues for us. And we've heard it, you know, we've said it, the government said it, the government agencies have said it. So there's been a lot of sort of violent agreement on some of those things. So I think there's been a bit of cut through. But there are a lot of voices. Well, I think we need to, um, to to prove the worth of our partnership with places like Costa Rica, and uh, I feel a fact-finding chip coming. <laughs> on. Yeah, me first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, listen, um, I'll be catching up with you later on in the week. You know, once we've seen a bit more. But um, when I'm broken and tired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's it. Like, I'm sure we'll be enthusiastic by the end. We'll be building to a crescendo. But anyway, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Stephen. Right, we are just outside the fence at COP26 with a view of the river. There is, this is a Scots word for you, Beatrice. Um, there is a smur of rain, right, which is just a, this very faint kind of, uh, kind of a very faint, fine rain, but it gets in everywhere, right? And I, I am joined uh, by Beatrice Laraski, who is inside the wire for us, right, negotiating away. But first of all, we were instructed, Beatrice, on Sunday, formally instructed by COP to connect with nature. As I understand it, it was a rest day. Did you get a chance to do that? Yes, we were incredibly lucky to get a gorgeous day yesterday at Inversnaid uh, with RSPB colleagues and BirdLife partners from around the world. And it was really uh, an amazing opportunity to recharge and learn a bit about a really precious and very degraded ecosystem that's very close by. Scotland's rainforest. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an amazing place in Bristol, isn't it? It's so, and particularly, you know what, you have locked out with the time of year because the colours must have been amazing. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And it was really interesting to hear about the restoration efforts that are going on and to kind of imagine what it could look like if those efforts succeeded. Yeah, no, there's a lot to hope for there. Right, now listen, back to the grind, right? Um... I guess, first of all, like, how do you think things are looking with one week down and one week to go? Well, I think the predominant feeling here is it's going to be a really tough week and a lot of sticky issues around transparency and carbon markets haven't been resolved yet. And it's looking like there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be a long road ahead for this week. And the presidency really wants us to finish on time. That's going to be challenging and I think that's usually how it goes. It's difficult to really call anything until it's really over. So, like, I, I realize I realize we're delving into your entire area of expertise and a lot of really deep stuff here. But in the in the briefest and most comprehensible way possible, when we're talking about issues around transparency and carbon markets, what are we talking about? We're talking about the systems in place for countries to report on their emissions and their efforts to reduce emissions and their adaptation and their finance. And so. There, this is, these are the outstanding 
parts of the Paris rulebook that haven't been finalized. So, you know, we've got the Paris Agreement. It's, it's mostly operational, but there are some important details about how countries are going to share information in a transparent way about what they're doing. And so you can imagine there's a lot of political sensitivity about what those reporting frameworks look like. On carbon markets equally, it's for, for civil society especially, you know, the biggest concerns are around environmental integrity and human rights and ensuring that these market-based mechanisms amount to real emissions reductions and don't provide a pathway for businesses to just offset their emissions. Yeah, because just to, just to help people out a bit with the idea about carbon markets, these are essentially the systems which allow people who emit, right, who are, who are in charge of things that emit, whether that's like what countries or businesses, I suppose, to be able to have a relationship with people who have things that they can do to mitigate, right, those carbon effects. But, but that has the potential both to be very positive, but also to have some really terrifyingly negative impacts, right? Yes, absolutely. So really, all of the market-based approaches have to have to be couched within a really rigorous rules-based framework which ensures that what the atmosphere sees is an overall and rapid reduction in emissions. And one example of that is we shouldn't be allowing any fossil fuel companies to offset their emissions. Uh, you know, a good benchmark is, has a business set out a credible and sufficiently ambitious 1.5 compliant emissions reduction pathway? And is there any room in there for offsets? And many times, if you look under the surface, the answer is no. Um, but Article 6, which is this issue in the negotiations, also has some other important elements like non-market-based financial sources for such emissions reductions. And it's important, it's important to be aware that not all of this is going to come from, from markets. And so it's a really big negotiating item that is still very much unresolved. Yeah, and that's one that we'll be keeping an eye on. I mean, you, you've kind of touched on this already, but just very briefly with the extent to which business is engaged in there, but there's, there's been quite a lot, particularly with the day of action um, uh, this weekend and, and with some of the reporting about it, quite a lot of anxiety right, about the corporate influence in there. There's, there was one report that came out this morning that something like 25% right, of the of the people in there lobbying potentially are either working for organisations that are linked to fossil fuels, right? What, what's your sense of the balance of voices in there and who's being listened to and who isn't? It's a good question and it's quite hard to say because it's impossible to, to sh know really what it looks like overall. You're just in certain conversations and in certain meet meeting rooms, but we know that there's so much going on at a given time. And the, the stat I saw this morning is that approximately 500 de delegates are actually fossil fuel lobbyists or very, very closely associated with fossil fuel companies. And that's, that's a huge worry. I mean, that's a bigger number than the largest delegation, which is Brazil, as we discussed, I think, last week. Okay. Um, so... We know that they are having an influence, and they traditionally have done, and we should be really, really strongly pushing back against the presence of fossil fuel lobbyists at this COP and at the process in general. So that's a huge concern. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's also, you know, the issue of transparency. You, don't, you need journalists who are crunching numbers and really like looking deep into documents to figure out who these people are and how many there are and trying to assess their due their undue influence yeah and look, speak, speaking as somebody whose job used to be investigative journalism right before i did this the the, the, the challenge there 
is 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 a a scale challenge, right? You've got you've got so many people in there, often working for organisations with names that sound great, right? <laughs> until you until you take the time to go back and look at who's on their board, who funds them, what are their declarations, all that kind of stuff. That is a very challenging thing, right, for 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 journalists to do who are covering something like this. When quite often the temptation is to get dragged by whatever narrative is presented to you by the presidency or whatever narrative is presented to you by your your national leaders, right? But we, as NGOs, right, we've got a role to play there too, haven't we? Yeah, and civil society, I think, has been communicating some of the key issues extremely clearly. So what we really need to hear in a very, very clear manner in, in writing and in in person, I guess, from the leaders at this process are, you know, a solid commitment to end fossil fuels in alignment with 1.5 degrees. That's really where this is at. That's really what this is about at the highest level. Of course, we're really interested in making sure that nature is protected and restored alongside that. But really, the number one priority for the climate crisis is just ending the use of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And, and that's that's what people are looking out for here this week. And that's what where we know a lot of tussles are happening. Last thing. Do you think it makes the job of people like you easier when you have effectively standing behind you right at the weekend at least 100,000 people in the rain in Glasgow speaking up about climate and nature? Does that, does that energise you? Absolutely. That energises me more than than anything and this is the first time I've missed the march and that was because nature day was on Saturday and we were following the events really closely but it's I guess it's it's really inspiring it's a reminder of why we're all here and what we care about and what we're fighting for and it you know those numbers speak really loudly people taking to the streets to in six-figure numbers is an incredibly powerful message that this is an issue people really care about and there is huge appetite from the public for change and that's really that's where it's at that's the most important thing breach right okay well we will catch up with you later on the week and see if any of these things get followed through on but meantime get in there do your job thank you i will Ask me what is my purpose Ask me what my name is They call me the coat of So, some of the things I have seen today Somebody who walked here from the south coast of England with a coat into which people have sewn patches they have made that she's met along the way that reflect their feelings about uh, climate change. Uh, and they were singing and it was it was very affecting. Uh, also, lots of drummers, quite a few protesters, and somebody doing karaoke dressed up as Darth Vader. Listen, it's all good, right? It's all good if it's uh, putting pressure in the right way. Anyway, uh, we will be back through the rest of the week. Uh, Probably trying to really, if we can, give you a sense later in the week about what 
deal is taking shape and whether it is the right deal. We're also going to have uh, a little bit of chat tomorrow, I think, from Scott Shanks, who's uh, RSPB Scotland uh, staff member and is a guy who knows everything about urban wildlife. And we're going to chat to him about um, the impact that climate change is having on cities like this, cities like Glasgow. Uh, and how he feels about the negotiations going on just a very short distance from some of the areas that he looks after for wildlife. Anyway, that is tomorrow. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.